0: listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavanna.com We're going to jump in because we got lots to do and lots to cover and not a lot of time. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus 7. We're on week eight of our, you know, who knows how many weeks in Exodus. We'll be here for at least through the beginning of the summer. Um, And so last week, what we saw is we thought we were gonna go run into plagues and there was gonna be action and movement, and it was like God hit the pause button. And we have this little little section where we think it doesn't fit, it doesn't seem to uh, be uh, a good place for it, but it's just a reminder for us as God hits pause of why he is delivering in the first place. He is calling a people to himself that they would be distinct worshipers. And so today, we're gonna unpause the VCR for those of you that don't know, a VCR was this box that you'd put a tape in and you watch a movie, all right? So yeah, I know you don't know what that is, but some of us do. So we're going to unpause and we're going to move into the action to see the what, God delivering, God's beginning to rescue his people. That's the what. But I heard a preacher say this week, and it was really just impressed upon me what he said. He said, all the great what's in, in the world are made significant when you understand the reason, the why behind them. Right? The why gives significance. The why uh, makes it impact even more so. And this is true in, in, in scripture, but it's also true in just, just in everything. Imagine your favorite movie uh, in a movie theater back when people actually went to the movie theaters. Right? You know, now your movie theater's your couch, I know, but it used to be you go to a movie. Imagine walking into your favorite movie right at that climactic moment of the movie, having no context of what's going on before. You don't know who the characters are. That climactic moment doesn't mean much. Because you don't know what the why of what's going on. So you walk in in the middle, uh, at the end of that climactic scene in and, and Rudy. Remember Rudy? Not the greatest sports movie ever, but close, you know, top five probably. But you, you walk in and they're carrying this guy on the shoulders and Rudy. You're like, why, why are they holding that hobbit dude on their shoulders? Yeah, he made a tackle. Yeah, good, that's what you do in football. Who cares, right? You don't understand what has happened and all the, just, you know, just for him to make a team and all that stuff. Or you walk in, one of my favorite movies when I was growing up was Old Yeller. Traumatic to me, all right? But Old Yeller. I mean, there's nothing better than a lab and his, and his, and his boy. I mean, a lab, the perfect dog, and here's this guy, he has this, and you walk in at the end when he shoots the dog. You're like, that's kind of mean, but he was growling at him. I guess he shoot the mean dog, right? And you're like, no, you don't understand, this dog saved their lives. He's the perfect dog. And, and then he, you know, they, the wolf came and he saved him and he attacked and now he's got rabies and that's why they should have had to kill him. Well, why didn't he have his rabies shot? Because this is the 1700s, okay? You have to understand the why so that the what means something. Or ladies, I didn't forget you. Imagine you walk in at the end of the notebook and there's these two old people in the hospital and they're holding hands and they're dead and you're like, that's a depressing movie, great. Like, you no, know, you don't understand. Every day he wakes up and he reads the notebook to her, and over two hours she comes, and then for 13 seconds she remembers, oh, it's me. And they dance for 13 seconds, and then she forgets, and he has to go over and over. And it's just such a love story, and that's so sad. No, it seems depressing to me. But the why gives significance to the what, right? It gives it weight. And so we're going to start unpacking the what, but the what is as significant as it is. It doesn't mean anything without the why. And so we're going to start seeing these 10 plagues. And I want to get behind the scenes and say, why 10 plagues? Because let's be honest, if God wants to deliver his people, he can do it any way he wants. He doesn't need 10 plagues that are going to take several months to play out. He could just be like, Pharaoh, gone. Gone. Earth swallow Pharaoh, lightning, whatever, everyone dies of a heart attack. He could have done anything he wanted. Instead, he systematically does these 10 plagues, and there's a reason why, right? And that's what we're gonna talk about today. And we're gonna cover just the first three and a warm up. And I want us to see the why. And it all goes back to one little question we looked at a couple of weeks ago that Pharaoh asks. Moses shows up and says, Let God's people go. And what does he say? Who is Yahweh? Who's the Lord? that I should obey his voice? It's a great question. It's the question of our day. In a day and age where everyone is the captain of their own fate, that my truth is what matters and I can do what I want. I don't need a God telling me what to do. I don't need some deity ruling my life. I'm in charge of my life, right? We have a world that is just turned upside down that now Mr. Potato Head is offensive and Mrs. Potato Head is offensive. I guess Toy Story is a bad movie now, I don't know. But that's the world we're living in where my truth matters, my life. And so what do we do with that? This, the plagues are the answer to that question. Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And there's two big driving factors here of why God does it this way. And we're gonna see them. Uh, as we enter in to really, this is the first era of miracles in the Bible. There's really four eras of miracles in the Bible. There's not Bible th- miracles just scattered every you know every day in the Bible. There's only four eras where there's actually miracles taking place. And it's always a leader and his protege. It's Moses and Joshua. And then you have a couple hundred years. It's Elijah and Elisha. Then you have several hundred years and it's Jesus and his apostles. And it's several thousand years. And then it's some two witnesses in the book of Revelation who, in the end times, will, will do miracles. That's it. And we're entering the first peri- period of miracles. And it's important I use that, that word because these are miracles. You're going to hear some that say, oh, these are just myth. They didn't really happen, just made up so that we can have some religious implications. There's going to be others that say, well, these things happened, but they were just natural phenomena, it's just all at one time. I mean, it was like El Nino, El Nina, global warming, everything together in Egypt in one year. Bad time to be in Egypt. Right? And then there's gonna be the position the Bible teaches that. No, no, these are miraculous events that God uses natural phenomena with a heightened supernatural sense to pr- prove a point. And there's several reasons that, that that is the case. Number one, there's an intensification of each one of these plagues. They build. The first three really are, are about all about discomfort. The next three are about destruction. The next three are about the dread of the Egyptians, and then there's the big the big one at the end, right? There's a predictive nature to each one. Moses is gonna to say, tomorrow, frogs, boop. Tomorrow, this, boop, and it happens. And even it starts when he says, it stops when he says, he even one time is gonna say, Pharaoh, you tell me when it's gonna stop. And it does. There's a predictive nature. It's not some, oh, it just happened. Right? There's actually gonna be a discrimination idea here where after the third one, the Egypt is gonna be the only ones to suffer and the Israelites are gonna be free. Where God's gonna say, I'm gonna set apart my people and they're gonna be safe and you're not. So there's just, it's not just everybody. There's, there's a miraculous sense where Goshen, where Israel is, they're safe. And there's just a, there's just a clear cycle and structure. So there's actually three cycles of three and then the final, t- the 10th one. And so each cycle has kind of a, a, a system to it. So the first one of every one, God says, Moses, I want you to go to him in the morning. The second one of every cycle, he just says, I want you to go to Pharaoh, not in the morning, just go to Pharaoh. And the third one, there is no warning, right? There is no warning. So he warns about the Nile, he warns about uh, the frogs, but then there's no warning for the gnats. And that's the, that's the cycle. The first three are all done by Aaron's staff. The second three, there's no staff. The third three are Moses's hands. So there's, just, there's a system here, there's a structure. God is showing, these are not just some, whoo, just happened, I am doing this, and there is a reason. This what has a why behind it, and that's what we're going to see today as we jump in. So let's, let's look at the warm-up first, and then we'll come to the plagues, and then we'll kind of talk about it. We'll cover the what and then the why. We'll pick up in verse eight of chapter seven. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. This is the sign God gave Moses back at the burning bush. This is the one he showed to the Israelites when he showed up, throw his stick down, it becomes a snake, right? The symbol of Egypt, the symbol of power. But what happens next, verse 11? Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. So what you see is Moses does his thing. He got one serpent. Pharaoh's magicians come in and they do the same thing and there's multiple. You say, how did that happen? How did that happen? Some say, well, they're just snake charmers and it was kind of a sleight of hand thing. I think that Pharaoh's men really did it and here's how. Because they're involved in the occult and witchcraft and there's demonic powers going on. And y'all, Satan has real power. Don't, don't think that he's just kind of some weakling. Satan has legitimate power in the gospels. There's a man who's full, full of demons. He's breaking chains. He's supernaturally strength and powered. You see in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the Antichrist is going to come with all signs and wonders and miracles, false signs. Jesus says in Matthew 24, and all of that discourse that there's going to be uh, miracles and false prophets doing signs and wonders to, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. All right? So if Satan has legitimate power, his power is just limited. It's limited. But here they're able to do, by the power of, of demons, by the power of Satan, the same thing. But look what happens. Second half of verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So you got one and then you got multiple, right? We don't know. At least two, probably more. And God's staff pulls a lady lading a tramp, spaghetti. There it goes.'re like, what? And that's a pretty obvious sign of what's going on, right? The one who gets swallowed loses, right? That's as the reality. The swallower is the winner. The swallowed is the loser. The big fish eats the little fish. Who wins? Big fish. The word swallow is only used one other time in the book of Exodus when the Red Sea swallows up Pharaoh's army. But the idea is this. The one who swallows wins. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. When the perishable puts on imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is what? Swallowed up. Who wins? Jesus wins. Why? Because he defeats death at the empty tomb. So now we don't have to fear death. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It's been swallowed up. There's victory, right? That's the idea here. What's going on back in Exodus is God in this warm-up is calling his shot. I'm gonna win. One snake, I don't care how many you have. This is what's going to happen, right? So let's jump into the plagues. And and what we're gonna see is these 10 plagues are not random. They are very specific. The Egyptians were polytheists. They had multiple gods, over 100 gods. And what God is gonna do is systematically pick apart each one. Boom, 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 boom. So that at the end, here's what it says uh, in the book of Numbers. Oh, numbers 30, 30, 33, three four. while the Egyptians were burying their firstborn, the Lord had struck down among them on their gods, also the Lord executed judgment. So God is picking apart their gods. And even though it's going to be evident in power, look at, look at Pharaoh's response, even just in, in verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. After he sees the legitimate miracle, his snake's all swallowed up, he, his heart is hardened. God will harden his heart in chapter nine, but right now, he is not a neutral character. This is a man who is opposed to God and he sees legitimate miracle and what he should have said is, uh, this guy is greater than our guy, but he doesn't. And so this, this is the response. And it's just a reminder that faith is not merely intellectual. Right? Because he sees and knows what happened and he still rejects. It's the same thing that Pharisees do when they see a risen Lazarus, dead for four days, come out of the tomb and what is their response to Jesus? Not, we should listen to this guy. He has power over the dead. We need to kill this guy. It's the same heart because it's sin, right? And so God is gonna pick apart their gods, right? He's going to take them out one by one. So let's look at the first one uh, in verse 14. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch it out over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, all their pools of water so that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff, struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So again, remember the Egyptians worshiped the Nile and they had multiple gods represented by the Nile but the main one they had was the god Happy, H-A-P-I. All right, happy was in charge of bringing the annual floods to the Nile. So when the Nile floods, it fills the fields and this brings life. Remember, the Nile is life in the desert. Without the Nile, there is no life. And so this God, they, they depended on, they put their hope in and their comfort in that, that this God, happy, would bring floods so that they could have food and they, so they could have life. Here's kind of a picture of old boy. He's blue. He's got a little stick. He's like a Smurf with a stick or something. I don't know, but that's Happy. Right? There's an old you know uh, piece of stone with a picture of of him. Uh, he was in charge of blessing. He, he was in charge of life. Right? That's his job, right? And how shocking would it have been for the Egyptians to wake up and the, the Nile was bred with blood. I mean, just think about how nasty that is. We and Clint were talking about this week. You know, a little bit of something is is okay, but a lot of it is nasty. Like a little mayo is is fine, but a lot of mayo is like yuck, right? A little blood is like okay, I got a little cut. A lot of blood is nasty, right? Think about the smell. Think about just just grossness. And the Nile, y'all, is not some little creek running through. You know, look at a little creek. This is the Nile. All right, I got this off a picture of like a travel website. So if you want to go, there it is. Okay, but but. Okay, this is just an average spot. Look how small that boat is there. The, the Nile is kilometers across at it spots. It's huge, right? Full of fish, and this is their source of life. This thing is blood, nasty, stinky red. All the fish, millions of fish, dead, everything dead. Happy, ain't happy. She's dead, right? It's, it's, it's a destruction of this God who failed them, and it lasts seven days. So what happens? Verse 22. Again, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. You would think that, the, that if you really wanted to demonstrate power, what would you do? Not turn water into blood. You'd turn blood into water, right? Blood, Dasani, yay! Right, that, that would be a miracle, right? But no, they, they do a little bit of a something, And just think, this is in their canals. This is in their ponds. This is in their vessels of wood. So you go—the equivalent is you go to the fridge, and you want to get a little water in the morning. Blood. Take a shower. Blood in the toilet. Blood. I mean, just, just blood. I mean, some of you who are like water snobs, and you won't drink anything. Oh, that's tap water. I don't drink tap water. I only drink, you know, triple filtered from the Himalayas. I mean, think about it—the the inconvenience and just how horrible, right? But they are able to do this, and what does it do to Pharaoh's heart? He hardens his heart, right? Pharaoh turned and went into his house. His heart remains hard. The Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink. They can go to springs in the desert. That's the only place. But the pitifulness, they're just feverishly digging just for dirty water in the desert because they couldn't drink it in seven full days. Seven days of doing this. That's the first plague. Let's look at the second Chapter eight, verse one, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Then I shall swarm with frogs. They shall come up into your house and on your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and in your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So he does it. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So what's this? Is this God just being like humorous? What would really be funny? Frogs, yeah, right? I mean, this is frogs on steroids, by the way. This is not just like, you know, kid, oh, I found a frog in the back and you put them in the Tupperware and put some grass in there. And oh, look at that. This is frogs. Every time you get into bed and you get under the covers, it's just slimy. And you're like, ah. Oh. You get in the shower, nasty. You, get, you put your shoes on, you just squish. Oh, right? This is frogs. I every mean, you're trying to walk around and you can't walk and you're squishing on them and it's just frogs. And frogs aren't deadly. It's not like they're like, you know, poisonous frogs. They're just an annoyance and you cannot get away from them. They're everywhere. What's the deal here? This is an attack on the Egyptian goddess Hecate. Right? Hecate was the fertility god. She was the one who breathed breath into your life. She had a head of a frog. There she is there bowing down to kind of Pharaoh's son. Right, body of a person, head of a frog. Here's another picture. There. <laughs> so those of you don't know, that's Kermit. I tried to get one of him singing the Rainbow Connection, but I couldn't find one. That, that's their, their God of fertility, their God who breathes life, the God who protects you in childbirth. And what, what God is doing here, he's saying, you, you wanna worship frogs? Okay, here. A frog, because of this goddess Hecate, was considered sacred in Egypt, so you couldn't kill frogs. The irony, they're stepping on them, squishing them. They're everywhere, right? You wanna worship frogs? I'll give you frogs. Here you go, so that you can't escape them, right? Verse seven, but the Egyptians, magicians were able to do the same. They made frogs come up on the land. Pharaoh called Moses and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs. Interestingly, his his magicians can bring them up, but where does he go to, to get them removed? He goes to God. He says, take them away. And I'll let the people go. And Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and all that's not. He's saying, okay, you want the frogs gone? Tell me when you want them gone by and I'll do it. Now, what do you, if I'm Pharaoh, I'm like now, today. For some reason, Pharaoh says tomorrow. Okay, fine. You got one more night of frogs. That's fine. Tomorrow, Moses said be it as you say so that you may know, underline this, that, you, that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people and they shall be left only in the Nile, right? So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs and as he agreed with Pharaoh and the Lord did, verse 13, according to the word of Moses, the frog died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank, but then Pharaoh hardens his heart. When there's a respite, he hardens his heart. So the frogs croak. Okay, one of you got that. Okay, the frogs croak. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart because there's a little bit of peace. There's a little rest. And he did not listen, underline this in your mind, just as the Lord said. this is what God said. It's gonna happen, right? There's a little relief, hardens his heart. And then a the third plague. And this one I think we can relate to a little bit. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats. Now the word gnats is actually a Hebrew word that could mean any sort of biting bug. And so the old King James says lice, that's bad enough, right? Some of you, you know, have kids in school and you hear that, get that email, someone in your class had lice. It's freak out time, right? Uh, it could be mosquitoes, which would be prevalent along the Nile. It could be biting gnats. It could be any, the idea was these are biting gnats you and they're irritating and and you cannot get away they're as prevalent as the dust so imagine your kids soccer game when the temperature is 75 and it's nine in the morning and you go out and you cannot even you have to sit in your car even though it's 700 yards away and you're watching the kids soccer game because you're not going to go out in it but it's 10 times worse they're in your nostrils, they're in your eyes, they're in your ears, you're itching all over. The Egyptians are not wearing like Eskimo clothes, right? You always see them, they're wearing like loincloths and, and short sleeves. So they're getting bit, it's just itchy, there's no calamine lotion, there's no deet, there's no skin so soft, there's no, you know, little coils where you write them and you stand by, there's nothing. It's just days of itching and annoying, you can't get under the covers, you can't go jump in the water because it's full of dead Frogs. So it's just, you cannot escape the discomfort of what is going on here, right? And we, we just get a, a little bit, right? And this is an attack on probably the God Geb or Set, the God of the earth or the God of the desert, one or the other who was supposed to control their deal and clearly they're not in control, right? And so look at the response of the magicians. Love this, verse 19. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, right? They were unable Verse 18, to produce gnats. They can't do this one. This is where Satan's power stops. Why? We don't know exactly, but potentially because only God can bring life from death. Right? Satan can't make dust into life. God can do that, but Satan can't. Right? And so now, that this is the finger, this is God's might. This is just his finger. That's how powerful he is. We are JV, he is varsity. We're in the deep end of the pool here, Pharaoh. We are in trouble. And, and the first recognition of the Egyptians of who God really is is from Pharaoh's own magicians. This is God. But Pharaoh's hearts hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord said, just like God said. So these are the first three in a warm up, right? This is the discomfort. That's the what. what, what what's the why? Why this way? Because again, if God wants them dead, we don't need to have a conversation. God wants them out, we don't need to go through all this. So what's going on here? I think there's two ideas that are in the text that, that God is doing. And here's the big one. Here's the big E on the R chart, right? Don't miss this one. That God is showing that he is the one true God and there is no other This is not like, I'm the greater God. There's the Nile and there's the frog God and there's this. No, no, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord and there is no other God, period. You think you're finding life in the Nile, wrong. You think you're finding life in Kermit the frog, wrong. You think you're finding life in the Sandman, wrong. There is no comfort. There is no hope. There is no security. All the gods of the world are idols. This is what prophet Isaiah says. This God speaking, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I'm not one of many. I'm not greatest among many. There is no other. Allah is not a God. Buddha is not a God. None of, whatever your name, the God of the Mormons, the God of the Jehovah, they, that is not a God. They are idols. I am God, there is no other. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the West that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Period. End of story. Have a nice day. That is the point. You want to put hope in the Nile? Wrong. You want to put hope in a frog? No. You want to put anything. None of these bring life. Who is Yahweh that we should obey him? He is the immortal, the invisible, the only wise God. In the words of the apostle Paul, be honor and glory forever and ever. And he uses these plagues to systematically, in essence, to decreate Egypt. He, he's reversing the creative order. Remember God, he separates the land from the sea. He brings vegetation. He brings animals. He puts animals under the dominion of man. He puts the sun and the moon for light he puts all these things, and what each one of these plagues is doing is reversing the creative order. Now the water is rebelling. It's turning to blood. The animals are supposed to be under the dominion of man are actually dominating. He's gonna take out the firstborn, the, the Imago day, the sixth day where he creates man. He's gonna remove that. He's going to do all these things. The sky is gonna rebel with hail. It's, the sun is gonna rebel. It's gonna be dark. The idea is this. God in creation, there's chaos, and he makes order. In Egypt, there is order, he's going to bring chaos to show this is what happens when you sever yourself from the creator. When, you, when he pulls his hand back from his creation, the sky rebels, the animal rebels, the water rebels, the heavens rebel, everything rebels because he is the one who holds it. And if you wanna sever yourself from God, it is actually destructive to yourself. This is what happens when you pull away from the one true God. You are actually hurting yourself and and from what he has said and what he's revealed. Simple things like honor your father and mother. Why? Because it goes well with you in the land. He's saying, if you learn to honor your father and mother, it's not about, oh, I'm a good little child, I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to be rich. No, if you learn to put yourself under the authority of your parents and you can follow direction and you can be respectful to those who have come ahead of you, that is a life lesson that when you go to work and when you have kids yourself and when you're a grandparent, those things will go with you and it'll go well with you because you've learned the principle of honor your father and mother. You don't do that, guess what's going to happen? Your life is going to be chaos because you don't know how to follow authority, you don't know how to respect others, you don't know how to be obedient. It's just a principle he's put into creation. And when you blow that off, you're hurting yourself. When you blow off what God says about marriage and sex and intimacy and say, I can do this outside of covenant. It doesn't really matter. It's my body, it's my life. You are actually damaging yourself. This is created for one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Can you do it outside of that? Yes. Guess what's gonna happen? The very oneness that you're seeking is actually gonna be harder to obtain because of what you've done outside because you're gonna have a calloused heart, you're gonna be given your way, you're gonna be connecting on a supernatural level with multiple people instead of one and it's actually gonna go against yourself. When you're bitter and you don't forgive and you don't release and you think I'm just gonna hold that against them, you think you're hurting them, you're actually hurting yourself, you're destroying yourself because your heart is being harder and harder and harder and harder and I can go down the line because you sever yourself from the, the word of God and the person of God, then you will destroy yourself. And God is showing them that, that their gods are powerless, that they are worthless, that they cannot offer anything. Happy, don't bring happy. She can't, he can't, whatever. It looks like a girl, but it's a guy, I don't know. That's the the idea, right? And this is actually, I know it seems severe, but this is actually the mercy of God on the Egyptians and on us. When God crushes your idol, and removes your idol, it is actually his kindness that was meant to lead you to repentance because what he's trying to show you is you keep running to this and so I'm removing it so that you stop running to this and start running to me, the one who actually can offer what you think that's going to offer. That's what he's doing. That He's removing that so that, so that there's mercy, so that a start running to him. Just in the same way, your doctor, your cardiologist, if your cardiologist says to you, you have a 90% blockage and your blood pressure has four numbers, that's not good. Uh, and you know your, your cholesterol has a million numbers. And so that's really bad. And so you have two choices. Number one, you can die. Or number two, you can stop eating this way, living this way, doing all these things. And for you to go to that doctor and say, well, who are you? To tell me to stop eating screaming memes? Who are you to, to, to limit the joy of bluebell ice cream to me? Who are you? I, I'm just the one that's telling you how it is. And that's what God is doing. He said, This is how it is, right? You sever yourself from me, it's destructive to yourself. And so the, to get down to the root of where we're at is the question, you have to ask the question, What's your happy? Pun intended. What is your happy? Because the names may change, but the principles doesn't. They had happy, we have Darwin, source of life, right? They have the Nile, we have the NASDAQ. They have fertility, you have followers. Whatever it is, what is it that brings you life? Oh, if I can just save up this much money and retire and have this much and be able to travel and do all this, then I'll be happy, right? Right? Fill in the blank. What's your happy? Money? Here's the irony. And I don't know any billionaires that I know of. But from what I read and what I see, most billionaires are miserable and they're jerks. Right? Which doesn't make any sense. Because these are the people that they're not worried like you and me. Like, can we go out to eat tonight? Can we afford that? Right? If the refrigerator breaks for them, they're not like, man, we, I don't know if we... Can we afford that? They go buy a new neighborhood <laughs> with new fridges. They're, if they want to, can we afford to go to, to Tybee for the weekend? These are the people that say, who wants to go to Paris tomorrow? Oh, let's gas up the Gulf Stream and get on and go. And we'll go see Mona Lisa and we'll go eat crepes or something. And we're, you know, funny hats. Let's go. That's them. They have everything you would think would make them happy. And for the most part, they're jerks. And miserable, not all, but most. And and it's because I think they've gotten everything they thought they needed and they get to the end of that river and it's just, it's dead. What's next, right? What's next? And y'all, we know this. Not the billionaire level, but you know this. Because you were at some point, you, you said, if I can just make the varsity, then I'll be happy. Were you? I mean, yeah, for a minute, but... Does anyone care that, except in 1984 that you and Uncle Rico were on the varsity together? Nobody cares, really. I mean, you, you, oh, if I could just get in that sorority, if I could just get to 1,000 followers, if I could just have, if I just get a $10,000 raise, man, then everything will be great. Guess what? You're spending the same amount of money. You have the same amount of money in the bank. If I could just get the O2 model, the O4 model, the O oh whatever, if I could just get the moon roof because I can see the moon, when I'm driving, <laughs> and I need a tree, and I need a new car with a new moonroof, I, I, if, if, and you got it, and it was fine for a while, and then it wasn't, right? You know this. You know that it's just a dead frog, and eventually it stinks. So what's your happy, what's your froggy God if I could just get married if I could just have kids, if I could just get into that school, if I could just, whatever. Let me just tell you, uh, as, a, as, as a husband and a father, husbands make horrible deities. We just are. We are not good gods. Do not put your hope in getting a husband to make all your dreams come true. he will give you dreams. I can tell you. Same thing with a wife. Same thing with kids. Kids make even worse gods than husbands. Get a lab. That's your best bet. Just don't shoot them. Because these things can't carry the weight of glory that only God can. A job, I fill in the blank. I don't care. You're, it's a frog. It's a frog. Comfort. Comfort is the God of America. And we live in the most comfortable society that's ever lived. You can, not, you can get everything you want and not move from the couch. I mean, you can grub hub Krispy Kreme, boom, bring me two dozen glaze. Thank you very much. You don't even have to talk to people and you can get things done. Hey Siri, text Joe. Tell him hi. Siri just woke up on my iPad. Hold on a second. There we go. I mean, we live in the most comforting society and yet we're the most depressed and lonely and anxious. We have more than we ever wanted. So it must not be what it promises to be. Right? And that's, that's the lesson, right? It's a, it's a Nile God, it's a frog God, it's a whatever, right? And so we got a couple options. We got really only two options when you come to this point when, you, when your idol is revealed. You can double down and be like Pharaoh and see legitimately that this fails. The Nile's dead, the frogs are dead, Gebs set or dead. The snakes are swallowed up. You can see it and you can continue to pursue it. And you're gonna just end up like the Egyptians who are digging little holes in the desert trying to find a little dirty water. And God crushes your idol. You can kind of scramble and try to figure it out on your own and figure out life, right? Or you can, uh, or you can turn and repent and believe. Uh, and, and here's a, a little warning inside that. That remember, when the frogs or removed, remember there's a respite and Pharaoh hardens his heart. I think there's a temptation for us as followers that we get, there's a chaotic situation, our life is chaos, our marriage is chaos, kids are chaos, cancer, whatever, and then we start getting real intense and walking with Jesus and it's a good place, and then there's a respite, and then what do we do? We kind of take our foot off the gas and we run back to the Nile, don't we? There's a warning in that. Do not harden your heart. Do not run back to your frog God once the chaos is removed, Right? Because what happens is this. If you sever yourself from God and start rejecting what God has revealed about himself, here's what happens. And this is consistent throughout the Bible. God eventually will give you over to that. You want the frog? Here's the frog on steroids. This is why the world we live in seems upside down. You wanna know why Mr. Potato Head and Mr. Potato Head are now offensive? I can tell you why. Read Romans 1 this week. There's your homework. When you reject your creator and what the creator has made clear, and you worship the creation, what does it say? God gives you over to that. You want frog? You can have frog. That's what happens. So if you're like, what is happening in America? God is giving us what we want. This is why it's so imperative. While today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't be like Pharaoh. And you end up, let me, let me read a quote by Richard Dawkins, who's by all, you know, by the worldly, you know, people, is considered one of the brilliant guy, who went to Oxford, right? This is, and he is, he's a smart dude, probably a high IQ. Here's what he says about God, though. Just, just listen to what he says about God. This is what happens if you keep giving yourself over. And he wrote this in The God Delusion. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, I hope that he repents because one day he will stand before Jesus with those words and that will not go well. But this is what happens when you harden and harden and harden and harden your heart and you reject what God has said, reject the simplicity. He may be Oxford trained, but guess what? My PE brain, PE major is wiser than him because I'm gonna bend the knee now rather than later. And so the solution is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. God crushes your idol, run back to him. He brings life, he brings joy. This is the one the psalmist says, he made known to me the paths of life in his presence or his fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what he is. He is the king of glory. So who is the Lord? He is the only God, right? So we follow him and we bow the knee to him. Here's the last point, real real quick. It's related to the first. He is the only God and he is the God of everyone. There's a reason why he does 10 plagues and not just one, just wipe them out. He constantly says it, that the Egyptians may know, the Egyptians may know, that you may know, that he is God, And so he actually says to Pharaoh in chapter nine, we'll see it next week. He said, for this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself, your servants, your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. That's the first point. For by now, I could have put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power. Here's why. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is not just the God of Israel, the God of Egypt. He is the God of all. And so what we're gonna see in chapter 12 when they finally leave, that a mixed multitude goes up. It's not just the Hebrews. There's a bunch of Egyptians that are like, Nile God's not God. Froggy God is not God. Desert God is not God. Yahweh is God. And they become followers of God because that's what God is about. All nations coming to him. So that 40 years later, there's gonna be a little prostitute in Jericho named Rahab who's gonna become one of the descendants of Jesus or one of the, in his his line. And she's gonna say, I'm doing this because I heard of what God did to the Egyptians, and now I wanna follow Yahweh. And here we are 3,500 years later talking about what God did in Egypt. Why? Because God is about the nations and about them coming to himself. Psalm 96, let me, let me just read it. I don't have a slide for it. It says this. Declare his glory what? among the nations His marvelous work among the peoples. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty before him. and his beauty. That's the point. Tell the nations. This is last week's sermon. Whose job is it to tell the nations? You are, because you're the priest. Right? This is why Jesus says, go and make disciples of what? All nations. Ours is a faith that crosses continents. That's why we living in Savannah, Georgia, 2,000 years after Jesus died and rose again, we're talking about it. Because God is the God of the nations. And at the end, every knee will bow, but around the throne, there's nations, multitudes of peoples. This is what God has been about from the beginning. So we come to him and we proclaim him, right? But... We don't put him among a pantheon of other gods. We don't have the the Nile God. We don't have our bank account God, our relationship God, our job God, our sports God. And then there's God, Sunday God. No, no, no. there's one God. And all the others are false idols because he's the one who brings life and hope and peace and contentment. He's the only one that can satisfy your soul. He's the only one that can give you life and life eternal. But you gotta come to him in faith, believing who he is, what he said, what he has done, turning from your sin, putting your faith in what he has accomplished for you, dying on the the third day, raising from the dead. That's who he is. And he wants you to know him and he wants you to proclaim him, to make him known. So that's the call. That is the why behind the what, that you would know that there is one God and his name is Jesus and that he is the, the God of all. Because at his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's worship. Why don't you stand with me? Father, I pray that these truths sink in deep to our soul. This is nothing new for many of us because we've, we've heard these things, but we need to be reminded because some of us honestly have been bowing at the God of the Nile or our little frog God or a little sand God or whatever else. And we are missing the Lord of glory. And so maybe today is a day where we just turn from those things and stop seeking significance and hope and, and something else, but find it in you. Find rest for our souls in you. And some in this room have been trying real hard, trying to earn your favor. Maybe they're trying to be good and get to heaven. I don't, I don't know, but they need to come to a, a place where they see you've saved and you alone, what you have done, you have accomplished. And we take you at your word, that you died for our sins, that you rose again, and that you offer life for those who believe. Wherever we're at, Lord, I pray your spirit would move and cause us to worship and to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's in your name I pray.